No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. What exactly happens at No, You Tell It? Give a listen to the first half of our recent blank show at Jimmy's number 43, featuring a story swap from Ryan Donovan and Jennifer Harder, and all will be revealed. demonstrate that tonight's theme is blanked. The way that it works at No You Tell It is I go out and kind of stalk people that have different backgrounds, playwrights, actors, writers of all different kinds, and we just throw out a theme. So we threw out the theme blanked about a month ago, and then they came into our first story workshop and we heard the stories for the first time, and we workshopped them together as a full group. The four people you're gonna meet tonight met each other for the first time, gave each other feedback on the stories. They had two chances to revise, and then tonight they're gonna stories are gonna leap off the page as they flip scripts and perform each other's story on stage. Not only is tonight the first time that you guys are hearing the stories performed live, it's the first time that our four storytellers are gonna hear their partner's interpretation and performance of their story. One of my favorite things is to put the storytellers right up on stage so that you can watch the writer experience their partner performing their story. That is a true life tale and happened to them. Our first story this evening was written by Ryan Donovan. What I like to do is before their partner performs their story, I like to do a little Q&A with the author so you get to hear their voice, meet this person. I was lucky enough to go to a fabulous dinner party at Ryan's house. So I was just wondering, what was what is your greatest culinary triumph? Like, what's like the the biggest thing you've pulled off? Like the number of people, or a fanciest dish? Uh, like what? Um, I think the one I'm most proud of may not be the best one I ever did, but uh, improvised a uh, risotto with bay scallops and kimchi. Ooh. So we're all going to go to Ryan's house <laughs> after the show, and we're going to hear Finally a Vacation, written by Ryan Donovan and performed by Jennifer Harder. Finally a Vacation. After graduating college, I drove cross-country with my first love, Emily. We drove from Pittsburgh, where we met, to Bellingham, Washington, where we stayed with my parents while I searched for a job. I had just graduated college, so this was a free and easy space between responsibilities. Five days of driving down Interstate 90 in love. Stopping for photos at every roadside attraction. Aluminum phoenixes, giant balls of twine, disappointing petrified forests. We talked politics and potential energy, sang along to Skinner and the Doors, and ate McDonald's and Wendy's. Five days in a car can drive people nuts, but not us. We grew stronger, more certain of the rightness of this pilgrimage to my parents' house. The sun's warmth seemed just for us. A last leg traffic jam was caused for canoodling, not conflict. We argued, but about current events, and not with malice, but in sport. While at my parents' place, they bought me a car. And I don't know the first thing about cars, but Emily had strong opinions. Buy something foreign, preferably German. <laughs> 
My dad, his heart set on seeing me ride around in a Cadillac, bristled. So I test drove a caddy, did the standard hard brake check, and the front of the car bounced off the asphalt. So I got a five-year-old Volkswagen Fox with power nothing and a stick shift. Emily refused to drive automatic, and I wanted a co-pilot. It felt right that she should have as much say as we'd be driving everywhere in it together. Cut to six years later, Emily and I married, homeowners in Pittsburgh with the VW Fox parked out front. The house was a duplex, a fixer-upper. We started with a kitchen, tearing everything out, cabinets, floors, and drywall, and revealing Korean War-era newspapers underneath. The stuff was old and falling apart. It needed to go. But the money ran out before we finished, so we washed dishes in the bathroom sink upstairs. The house was the iceberg on which our relationship had crashed. It was destroying us, like the most boring possible sequel to The Poltergeist, the Amityville inconvenience. It amplified every issue we had, and we had plenty. We had a cat that saw the world as its litter box. I worked a job I hated. She went to school and had minor nervous breakdowns. During the evenings, we drank and yelled at each other. Our bed was a mattress on the floor in which we made the best attempt at being conjugal. So when my college friend Albert asked if we wanted to visit him in Virginia Beach, we jumped at the chance to get out and back on the road. Albert had invited a couple of other friends from college who were actors on a TV show filming near Virginia Beach. Emily and I both knew Albert in college. He was sharp, creative. He ran with the drama kids, thus the actors. We connected well. He once said that he and I were the only men he knew who had monthly mood cycles. Plus, I took care of his snake for a year. He owed me. <laughs> this was the day before smartphones of handheld Google Maps. To figure out how to get there, I had to go to MapQuest, yeah. plot the route, and then print it out. <laughs> I had to rely on a half dozen pages eventually coded in dirty footprints. And we also didn't have a cell phone. Partly by choice, partly by financial circumstance, I held my landline as a badge of honor. Cell phones were for the Patrick Batemans of the world. Slick monsters who toted their gadgets and gear as status symbols. See, my status symbols were my scorn for status symbols. <laughs> we prepared everything Thursday night. Called to confirm the address, printed out the directions, and wrote both the address and Albert's phone number on the back of one of the printouts. The trip would run seven hours and take us through three states and five interstate highways. A road trip. The cement of our relationship. To get out of the house and into a car, smaller, more intimate, seemed a respite. We could seal ourselves into a four-gear time machine and remember why we liked each other. So when Friday morning dawned on us, in went the mixtape and off went us. There hung an unspoken promise like a pine tree air freshener. Don't talk about the house. Don't talk about the wounds that accumulate in a relationship. This trip is a reprieve, a baptism in the Atlantic among friends old and new, a remembrance of the good times we had in the past. And a few hours into the trip, there it was, that old feeling, adrift, hopeful, the destination ahead of us, new and charged with possibilities, we stopped at a gas station and bought Hostess Pies. The tape had repeated, so we searched for a reliable classic rock station. The windows rolled down, singing Slow Ride or More Than a Feeling at top volume with the wrong pitch. 
<laughs> it felt like the vacation had just begun. Emily laughed. Ha! Do you think Albert got his snake back? No way, I said. That thing left us and went to Vegas in the care of an understudy to the Blue Man Group. It's never coming back. <laughs> we laughed and we felt easy. There were no plumbers to call, no cat shit to clean out of the carpet, just a road and a destination. And later, near the Virginia border, we stopped to indulge in McDonald's. These greasy little heart attacks had no regular slot in my diet outside of road trips, but this was the ritual. Unhealthy food, eaten with one hand on the steering wheel. I drove out of the parking lot, one hand on the wheel, one on the quarter pounder. <laughs> Emily had one hand on her filet of fish, one on my thigh. <laughs> we smiled, reminisced. Seven hours after leaving Pittsburgh, we took the exit into Virginia Beach like pros. No fights, full of fast food and Dr. Pepper, ready to relax. We could smell the salt of the ocean, stronger as we neared the house, turning this way and that, per the MapQuest directions. Seagulls braid overhead, welcoming us toward beer bottles stuck in the sand and midnight swims. We finally turned onto the street that his house was on, directly adjacent to the water. The location could not be more perfect. Had they rented it? Did it belong to one of his friends or their family? Huh, it didn't matter. We counted the numbers in the houses, increasing towards our destination, vacation. Here we come. <laughs> the street ran out of pavement before we found our lucky number. A dead end against the water. Our faces fell. But this was only an inlet. I could see more street across the water, and that street would have more numbers. All was not lost. We wove our way through houses, dogs and men with graying temples and Bermuda shorts eyeing us sideways. <laughs> Driftwood and professionally distressed metal sculptures told us beach life is slower. <laughs> it certainly felt like the drive was taking forever. Over a bridge, the pristine blue water of the inlet below us. We turned on the street we saw across the inlet, but it had a different name. It terminated in the same sandbank we'd seen across the inlet. All we had to do was call Albert and figure out where I'd made the wrong turn. I flipped over the MapQuest directions for his phone number. Blank. No phone number. No address. All we had was the MapQuest directions, and that led us into the sea. All was lost. At this point, reasonable people might switch to a plan B. Find an internet cafe and check the email. Or alternatively, find a hotel or bed and breakfast and have a vacation. We'd driven seven hours across several states and now could not find our destination. Make the best of it, right? Wrong. <laughs> Emily boiled with fury and her recriminations filled the car. Why didn't you write down the number? <laughs> I thought I did. Maybe I wrote it on another piece of paper. You didn't, though! I can't believe you didn't write the number down. This is why I wanted a cell phone. If you had let me get a cell phone, this wouldn't have happened. You always do this. Since I was a kid, anytime someone I care about yells at me about something I screwed up about, I shut down. I switch into survival mode, clam up, nod my head, and agree to anything in hopes that they stop yelling at me. Emily wanted to start driving home. So I nodded my head and put the car in gear. Why didn't we get a hotel in Virginia Beach, check for an internet cafe and find the number? I knew it was my fault. And five-year-old me took over and shut up. If I just do what she says, maybe she'll stop yelling. And eventually she did stop yelling. 
leaving a silence so thick that I choked on it. We intended to drive all the way back that night, but once night fell, we started to get tired. She napped in the passenger seat, and I could hardly keep my eyes open. Hey, can we stop in the next exit and get a hotel, I asked. She sighed and nodded tersely, so I started scanning for gas food lodging signs. Turned out, we were in the middle of nowhere, 30 miles each way from somewhere. We saw only one sign advertising a motel, so we took it. The Last Chance Inn or something, free cable on the sign, one E falling off, crooked. <laughs> the room we got looked like it was the kind of place you'd find your alcoholic uncle dead in. <laughs> Warped wood paneling, shag carpeting, overstarched bed sheets. We watched some free cable to drown out the sound of other patrons humping through paper-thin walls. I resigned myself to how miserable this experience would be and tried to get some sleep. Emily sulked on top of the filthy sheets, fully clothed. This was our vacation. Our freedom from our decrepit and decaying house. This motel, with bugs in the tub and grit stomped into the carpet, was what we fled to. Emily once broke the lease on our first apartment together because she found one dead cockroach. This motel looked like it hosted the regional convention. <laughs> she woke me up four hours later after tossing and turning with dreams of vengeful hookers murdering us both. We snuck out like thieves into the desolate parking lot and drove back to the highway. Sure, we were pros. We could do another long drive, no problem. We were tired and resentful. I spent most of the ride jumping from one classic rock station to the next somehow filling the suffocating silences. Back home, we dropped our bags, still full of, still folded clothes by the door, and went to sulk in separate rooms. I went to the third floor to play video games among cat diarrhea. And she went to the bar. We divorced within the year. Years ago, I picked it back up, and I actually make more money 
playing the trumpet than I do for acting, which is kind of funky. That is kind of funky, it's but kind amazing. Of funky, yeah. And do you have a time where you blanked musically? I mean, maybe they're, you know, one, you can pick one to talk about. It's the worst, but it's also, in retrospect, the best. I blanked musically in the summer of 2013 in the Czech Republic. Um, I was playing with a very political rock band, one of Tom Morello's, like, side projects. It was very political. Um, if you can imagine The Clash mixed with um, uh, mariachi. <laughs> of course. That's what we were playing, and it was awesome! And we were playing, and then, and then, their friends, Gogol Bordello, came to like scout us out, and we were all like, meh, meh. and then I was, they were like, take a solo, and I was like, oh, like, just, <laughs> and it was the worst moment of my life, and I think that they, the, the, you know, the, the famous people had already left, but I remember just being like, what the fuck did I do? Like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't, there was no answer for that. It was crazy. They were like, that was some avant-garde shit you were doing. I was like, I don't know what I was doing. Um, and then a year, almost a year ago, almost a year ago, uh, I got a call from Gogol Bordello saying, oh, that night, you were so good. And I was like, the worst night of my life? You thought <laughs> I was so awesome? good. And they invited me on tour. So whatever happened when I was blanked out, it must have been genius. Because <laughs> it got me a, a national tour. It was so. genius, and now my new favorite phrase is... <laughs> <laughs> With that, we are going to hear Runaway, written by Jennifer Harder and performed by Ryan Donovan. Runaway. The physical act of running has always been brutal for me. The scorched lungs, difficulty breathing, taste of blood in the back of the throat. I thought this was just what happened with running. Turns out I had asthma. <laughs> but I also had bad ankles, bad knees, bad back, constant watery eyes, nose, ears, simply not built to run. But you know what trumps all that physical pain? Having to deal with emotional pain. So I took up running in my mid-twenties, not to deal with my body image issues, but rather to drown them out. And it wasn't just running. Here's a sample of one of the most extreme over-exercising days from 2007. Rising with the sun and running an hour around Prospect Park, biking six miles to Manhattan, swimming laps for 45 minutes at the NYU gym, working a full day at Bellevue Hospital, doing an hour of yoga afterwards, attending a rehearsal or meeting for theater, biking home, and then speed walking an hour around the neighborhood till I passed out. I also changed my diet from a Midwestern one, carbs, sugar, meat, and dairy, to a New Age one, raw, gluten-free vegan. My body certainly looked like I took good care of it, but in reality, I was treating it extremely poorly. This type of extreme behavior was nothing new. In high school and college, I stayed mind-bendingly busy, so I wouldn't have to deal with feelings of awkwardness, loneliness, isolation, sadness, etc simply taking it to the next level. My body issues were not just about image. I'd also gone through a sexual assault in my teens that I chose to ignore exactly as I ignored all the familial backstory that gave me body dysmorphia. Emotions are held in the body. I didn't want to touch those feelings. I didn't want to touch my body. I truly thought that I was broken 
and didn't work properly. That my lack of libido and curiosity was just how my life was and would always be. Any sort of intimacy, any sort of touch, I was very uncomfortable with. When I asked my doctor about my non-existent libido, she tested my hormone levels. The test came back normal. And she ultimately suggested smoking marijuana. And in fact, I started to have a dependency on smoking weed in order to have sex with my live-in boyfriend, John. It numbed me enough to allow for it to happen. But over time, we were lucky to have sex just a handful of times a year because with all the busyness and the exercising, I was just too tired. How convenient. All of my avoidance techniques left no room for thought, no room for feeling, for connection, or awareness at all. One evening, when I didn't have any after-work responsibilities, I checked the download folder on my boyfriend's computer because legally downloading media is what I consider to be man's work. <laughs> he would say, I could give you a fish and you'll eat for a day, or I could teach you to fish and you could, ah, oh, give me the goddamn fish. <laughs> but instead of finding the latest Beck album, I saw porn for the first time ever. And it short-circuited my brain. Here was a woman who I will never look like, skinny with huge tits. How does that happen? Doing things I don't even know how to do. And he obviously doesn't want me to do them, or he'd ask me. Instead, he's watching her. I ran. It was a thunderstorm outside, but I ran and ran and cried and cried. I got a call from him saying he was home. Where was I? I hung up and kept running. I finally came home, and he was obviously worried, asked for me to talk about it. I couldn't. I cried, and he took the sheets off the bed, saying he wouldn't let me sleep until I told him what was wrong. I chugged a bottle of NyQuil so I would sleep without the sheets and without saying anything. This avoidance continued for years. Swimming would sometimes get exchanged for tennis, vinyasa yoga turned into Bikram, bottle of NyQuil became a bottle of wine, and I was spinning my wheels. I hated my broken self and didn't have the first clue how to move forward in my life. So I literally move forward all the time. Nothing feels right. I've never felt right. So it doesn't matter. Take the next step. On the first sunny day of spring 2009, I got a little suspicious when I noticed how well John was dressed and his posture. So straight, looking dapper, spring a step. What was that twinkle in his eye? Suspicions were raised even higher when he suggested a walk in the park. <laughs> Never had he suggested my most favorite activity of a park walk before. In fact, it was an inside joke that I would often suggest a little stroll around the block and then trick him into the park. <laughs> Here he was being handsome and tall and all parky strolly. <laughs> uh, had I known what was to come, I'd have put on makeup or running shoes. So we enter the park, daffodils are out, he's smiling, very chatty. So much suspicious activity because John was well known for being more of a thinking man than a talker. If you ever had to confide in someone and had to make sure the secret was safe, John was your man. 
we once house sat for a friend, and he took a group photo of us out of its frame, scanned it, photoshopped one guy out, and replaced him with George Clooney, reprinted the shot, framed it back up, and then let it be. A whole six weeks went by until her boyfriend asked, Honey? <laughs> but he would let decades go by and never felt the need to speak. I guess in this respect, we were the perfect non-communicating couple. He led me into a section of the park with a bench and made me sit. I felt anxiety coming on. I got up and got walking again. He stopped on a hill, hugged me, and, I been, and began to talk. I left and kept walking. We got to the lake. I was nearing a full-on panic attack. He hugged me, said, been together for such a long time. All of a sudden, lyrics to a song kept repeating in my head, over and over. This is so real, it hurts to breathe. Like a panic asthma attack. My mind was reeling. My breath was getting short. And I ran. I ran through that park. John in hot pursuit. <laughs> Up hills and stairs, through pine trees, over a meadow. <laughs> it, it was a beautiful day. <laughs> he took his sweater, sweater off mid-run, and I thought to myself, I can't keep running. He'll last some time. Someday, I'm not on guard. It's going to happen. Let it happen. You don't feel right? You've never felt right. Doesn't matter. Take the next step. So I veered into a clearing in the pine trees. John caught up. His hand went into his pocket and pulled out a tissue to blow his nose. Because neither of us are actually good at running. <laughs> then out came the ring box, and we walked out of there engaged to be married. If doing the same thing repeatedly, expecting different results, is the definition of insanity, I'm not sure what doing exponentially more of the same thing and expecting different results is. It's like uh, heating up the contents of the beaker above the Bunsen burner until all that's left is the inevitable explosion. The wedding looked so perfect. We looked so perfect. The dress was perfect. My body was perfect. I lost so much weight that my dress was held up by being taped to my bustier. John was so handsome. The weather was gorgeous. Vows were eloquent. Our family was happy. Our friends were having fun. And yet, I remember so clearly standing at the altar, watching things move like they were in fast forward and feeling completely empty. At that moment, I literally thought, this is my wedding. This is my life. Why don't I feel anything? I had succeeded perfectly at running from and smothering all feeling but I didn't feel a goddamn thing. I was so goddamn tired. Saddest honeymoon ever consisted of me doing everything I could to avoid the man I'd married. I yoga at 6 a.m., we snorkeled, swam at a waterfall, hiked seven hours to an active volcano, kayaked a bioluminescent bay. I drank wine. We disagreed. We fought. We hardly touched. I picked up a bad romance novel habit in the San Juan airport. Oh my 
we were separated six months later. He moved out after seven, and we filed for divorce soon after. It took me years to slow down, even longer to stop, and a few more to go back and pick up the pieces. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.